Success is the most convincing talker in the world. It's only by wisdom, prudence, and dexterity, which means skill, that great ends are attained. So that was Napoleon Bonaparte, who was the obviously great leader in France in the 18th and 19th century. He conquered much of Europe. He's considered one of the greatest military strategists in history. He prepared to conquer, and he did, until he didn't. He was ultimately outmaneuvered famously at Waterloo in Belgium. And the great man who had conquered the world died alone in exile, some remote island in the South Atlantic Ocean. Now, for you who like history, his life is obviously fascinating, worth reading about. It's interesting. I don't think any of you would say it's shocking. Isn't that what happens all the time? Leaders raised up, leaders fall. A much more surprising and maybe even unthinkable is the story that doesn't end, but begins with the leader exiled, sent away to the place of shame. The whole world understood instinctively that the Roman cross was Jesus of Nazareth's end, that they would be done with him. Strangely, he honestly saw it as the beginning. As we've been going through his high priestly prayer these last few weeks, John 17, what should shock us is not once does he pray for the Father to give him grace to endure the cross. No, but he he sees beyond it. He sees glory coming. He sees good coming, especially for those who will believe in him because of it. Kings of this world, their kingdoms begin in glory again and again, end in tragedy. Not Jesus' kingdom begins in tragedy. It will end in glory. And this morning we finish his high priestly prayer in John 17. We're going to look at the last seven verses, verses 20 through 26. So if you'll recall in this prayer, Jesus has now prayed for himself. He's prayed for his immediate disciples. And now before he goes to the cross, he intercedes before the Father for you who will believe in him. Let's read this text now, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. They may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am 
to see my glory that you have given me before, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Here's what you should see from this text. Jesus died to bring about otherworldly unity and otherworldly glory. Jesus died, bring about the purchase for his people an otherworldly unity and otherworldly glory. And if you're taking notes, that'll be the two things we see from this prayer. First, otherworldly unity. Otherworldly unity, verses 20 through 23. We're coming to the end of this prayer, and what is so obviously strange about it is that Jesus is praying for people he is certain will believe in him through his disciples' word. So he's already made this kind of thing clear in this gospel. Back in John 6, he he said, and all that the Father has given to me will come to me. But that wasn't when the cross was squarely in his sights. Now he knows the cross is coming. He sees it. And he clearly, clearly sees this as a new beginning. I can't fathom that anyone who went to a Roman cross ever prayed like this, except Jesus, who will believe in me. On the other side of this, he clearly wants his disciples convinced there are sheep they must find because of their word about the cross. So this would give his disciples confidence and boldness to proclaim the cross of all things to the world as salvation. And it would comfort his people, disciples. So are you believing in Christ crucified this morning? Then this is about you. The shepherd knows his sheep. Think of this. Jesus Christ was praying for you even before you knew to ask for prayer. Strangely, Jesus didn't go to the cross a little nervous that everything was going to work out. He he went certain of it. For him, the cross was not the tragic failure, but the glorious triumph. These disciples who are about to fail Jesus massively would not fail him so greatly that he could not use them. And for you as a Christian, you could not, you cannot fail so greatly as to stop Jesus Christ from bringing you to believe. I think the more you understand that your salvation was the great plan of of God from before the foundation of the world, this the more it explodes your love for him, the more it grows you in understanding salvation as a stewardship. He's staring at the cross, and yet his sights are set on those who will believe in him. And what does he pray for those who will believe? Look at verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Of everything he could have prayed for, 
He prayed that his own disciples would have an otherworldly unity. If this is the main thrust of his prayer, we should look at this. I want us to think about four things that we should observe, learn about Jesus's prayer here. And the first about this otherworldly unity is this. The Father and the Son created our unity. They created our unity. The main reason this unity, Jesus prays for his people, is not of this world. Is It's not a unity we create. It's one he purchases and creates by his blood. Since the fall of the world into sin, humanity has been united. Fundamentally in this way, in its rebellion against God. That's the unity we've created. That's what we've done. Apart from Jesus, we are united with this world. We love what this world loves. We desire what this world desires. So it's common, but it's not always wise when leaders appeal to our shared humanity, to inspire us to do something great or good in the world. What we most fundamentally share together in our humanity across cultures and nations is our desire to throw off God, to keep him quiet, to push him to the side, to deem him irrelevant in his own world. The world has a a natural unity, its own doing, its own power. But by the cross, the Father and the Son supernaturally create a people that brings about a unity through their power and their doing. Spirit-given, supernatural life creates unity between others who have also been supernaturally made alive by the Spirit. Now, we must understand this because we're not trying to create a unity here. We're trying to make visible the unity the Father and the Son have created. So by our togetherness, we're displaying, we're protecting what God has done by his power. We're not trying to create that by our power or cleverness. They created our unity. Second, the Father and the Son are concerned for our unity. They are concerned for our unity. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one. Verse 23, that they may be perfectly one. So God has created our unity, but clearly our unity has not reached the perfection it ultimately will. So we work for it. When Jesus says here he has given us the glory that the Father gave him, verse 22, he, he means by this the excellence of his character. To, to, to know who God is, truly, you must see him in the climax of his revelation in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus's glory when he was on the earth would not have been noticeable because he looked so differently clear from scripture, there was really nothing in him to attract us to him, but that he lived so differently. It was the glory of his person, who he was as the very image of God, as he lived and he talked. What glory has he given us? 
I'd say he's given us his person by his spirit. By this, by grace, we reflect the excellency of the character of Jesus. And by grace, slowly, imperfectly, but truly, it makes the Christian distinct from the world. I think an obvious question as you read this is, did Jesus fail in this prayer? Did he fail? I mean, even under Protestant Christianity, there's divisions lead to different denominations. Protestant Christians disagree over things like baptism and church government and the specifics about the return of Jesus, the, the work and the role of the Spirit and gifts as they relate to today and, and other areas. Even in these disagreements, where deep and lasting unity is found is in the gospel. That unity is foundational and it triumphs over secondary issues, even though secondary issues matter. So the gospel, Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures on the third day. And this is a gift that is received by faith from first to last is of first importance. It's foundational. It's because we understand we hold to a different gospel than Roman Catholic friends or other groups that we do not share this most fundamental unity together, that we do share with other Protestant evangelical Christians. And yet, this does not mean these secondary issues do not matter. If you think about your Bible, it's not just one page quite a number of pages. And I think it'd be like saying the only gear that a car needs is drive. Car has different speeds. It does different things. It has gears that function for a certain purpose. Much more the word of God. Just because a biblical teaching is secondary does not mean it's unimportant. God didn't just say, hey, this is how to be saved. And then nothing else. He reveals teaching, how to understand the church and, and missions and worship and so far, so forth. So how we understand his word on these matters matters. We're accountable for it. Sometimes it might prevent partnership with brothers and sisters with whom we know a deep unity in the gospel. So as you look at divisions, in a very profound sense, good fences make good neighbors convictional fences promote rather than destroy unity. It's when we bind ourselves to the word that we're best positioned to shake hands over the fence in the gospel while at the same time protecting our own consciences according to God's word where we believe the Bible commands us differently. So it never does right for a church to preach something or practice something that the church does not believe God has revealed or commanded in his word. So as you think about church and joining with a church, you want to be somewhere where you're protecting your conscience under what that church believes and practices. As you think about partnership in the gospel or in missions, clarity of convictions bound by God's word promotes unity because it provides boundary lines for cooperation. That's why the unity that the son's praying for here is not institutional. It's spiritual. So I don't think that this prayer demands an overarching structure like the Roman Catholic Church has from this prayer. 
I, I would argue that even though it appears that Protestant Christianity is divided into a number of different groups, the spiritual unity created by the gospel unites us and is profoundly greater than what divides us. So, down to a very practical level, while there are many ways that the charismatic church, the Methodist church, the evangelical Methodist church, the most reformed church in the world, genuinely disagree. If they're faithful, you will hear the true apostolic gospel proclaimed in each one. So the word which we bound our consciences allows us to know great unity together, even though that's not institutionalized. So we protect our unity by binding our consciences where the word binds it, in our life together, in our practice, in our worship. The word protects us. What does it protect us from? Idolatry. It protects us as we protect the gospel together. It's the word that the gospel is revealed in that allows us to share a freedom together in our own consciousness and maintain a lasting unity, even when we have real disagreements over other things that are revealed in God's word. So as you think about unity, recognize that each church is accountable to God for its own life and practice and must be faithful to steward God's word. And it's as we do this, that we strive for and keep this unity that the father and the son are concerned for. The father and the son are concerned for our unity. Third, clearly, the father and the son are the pattern for our unity, the pattern for our unity. Jesus doesn't leave us to guess what the unity for which he prays looks like. Look at the second part of verse 21. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22b through the first part of 23, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So the Father and the Son have a oneness that sets the pattern. Oneness begins with the triune God. Who is God within himself, apart from his works outside of himself in the world? God is within himself absolute perfection. His attributes are identical with his essence. Now, what does that mean? For you and me, when we speak of goodness, we understand clearly goodness is something outside of us. It's above us, but not God. God is good. God is love. His attributes are not standards outside of him. It's identical with him. Uh, theologians have said God is everything he possesses. It cannot be said of us. And the reason that Jesus can say the Father in me and I in you is that the Father, Son, and Spirit each share one undivided nature, each one fully and wholly God. Jesus says the Father is in him. He is in the Father because each person is fully God. Whole God is in each person. And so the three persons are in one another. They mutually indwell one another. 
So what we have when we see who the triune God is really within himself is something so profound that honestly, there's no human analogy that is like it. They all fall short. At their very best, a husband and a wife desire to have a union so close that they're one, not two. But the triune God, undivided, distinct in his persons, never, ever divided from himself. And so because of the mutual indwelling of the three persons, the one single God always acts out of love and communion that God knows within his being. So basically, God, apart from this whole world, is infinite fullness and life and love, knowing joy that we cannot fathom within his own person. The question is not, honestly, how did God create the world? But in one sense, why? Why would this God who doesn't need the world create it? He does so for his own glory and joy that he might put it on display as creatures see him and enjoy him. And it's from this life that he has within his person, this unity that the pattern of life is set for his people. I, I, I would hope that you would see that what the son is praying for should, should astonish us and cause our minds to soar. Uh, the bond of a mother with her baby or the husband and wife who, who so love one another that they are almost like one is but a faint echo of the love and the oneness of father and son. And it points us toward a unity for which we were created and are headed. So the father and the son were not bored before the world was created. They were exploding with life and fellowship and in union acted to create, to sustain, to redeem, to recreate the world. And it's that unity that undergirds their unity in their mission. So just as they are one, they act together as one. This pattern by the Father and the Son is, as one writer says, the unity of common mind and purpose and unqualified mutual love, a sustained comprehensive togetherness in mission, as revealed in the Father-Son relationship. So for our joy and for our life, the Father and the Son created unity among us and set this pattern for us. The only way that you will see the heights of the son's love for his own and the plans he has for us is understanding more and more who God truly is in himself. The infinite love and fellowship he has within his own being. Jesus prays for this oneness and then he goes to die for it, that we might reflect this unity that has been in God from all eternity. And finally, Jesus praised for the, the goal of our unity, the Father and Son's goal of our unity. Why does he pray for this unity? Verse 21, that the world may believe that the Father has sent the Son. Into verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So there's a great deal at stake in this. What the world sees in the church either gives credibility to or it undermines the claim that the Father has sent the Son. Now, you may not think much about this. You may not 
care that much about the unity between God's people. But Jesus does. I mean, consider how important this must be that of all the things he could have prayed for as he goes into the hour, he prays for this. And he says that our unity makes known to the world that the Father loves us even as he loved the Son. Now that is unthinkable. There's no way we would make that up. That is something that is too good to be true. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus says. By faith, in union with the Son, we get swept up into this love that the Father has given to the Son from all eternity, from before the world began. I hope that this would raise the affections of your heart, how you see the glory, the otherworldly unity between the Father and the Son, and it would cause you to rejoice that you've been called into this and now can make this visible. We are trying to display to the world a unity that is built on a love that this world cannot fathom. It's why we unite as a body. In saving us, the Lord has made us a part of his body, and then he's given us different gifts that function as different parts of the body do. Some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are head, some of us arms, but we come together to work together as one body so that the whole body can know that it depends on each part. So to be a Christian is to be united to Christ, part of his body, and the Father and the Son want their body visible in the world. I think uh, as you think about this at a very local level, it should raise your estimation of what's happening in faithful gospel-preaching local churches. No one is a global Christian apart from being a local Christian. Jesus has united you in the local church, not just with those who are like you, but those who are very unlike you, with the whole body. It does not mean you'll know everyone in the same way or have the same relationship with that person that you maybe have with another person. It does mean you do have a particular responsibility locally to the people with whom you are joined with in the body for prayer, for discipleship, for love, for care. You take that responsibility on joyfully. We all do. I think a very practical application for us as a body that we could grow in is praying together on Sunday evenings. This matters for our oneness and it matters for our witness. When you come regularly, you're saying, I want to be in the position to know that person's need. I want to be in the position to pray for that ministry opportunity I wouldn't otherwise know about. I want to be together with this body that I've covenanted with in a serious way. Pray for that brother or sister that the Lord has put me with in this body. The Lord has put us here to be together. One, that the world might know that the Father has sent the Son and that he loved us even as he loved the Son. I think for us as parents, we do want our children to see us prioritize this, to make sacrifices, to even be inconvenienced for this. This works toward our unity and our mission together as a local church. Set the time aside. Prioritize it. It will bless you. It will further your labor and your, your ministry. But more than all of that, it furthers our life together. And it brings glory to the risen Christ.
I mean, do you see here how the oneness of his people is Jesus's plan for evangelism? By this otherworldly unity, the church makes visible the supernatural power of the gospel. It's why I see the wisdom of and long for those who are hearing the gospel to see it's visibly displayed in a local church as they're seeing the way that God by his gospel brings together a group of people who have no business being together. That's the power of the the local church. It makes visible what is otherwise invisible. And enjoy this unity. Enjoy it. The son has prayed for this. He's purchased this for us. I personally don't think there's any place on the planet like the local church. Yeah, for all of our strangeness and idiosyncrasies, you know, we have weird uncles and cool people. We have the the broad spectrum, but there's nothing like the bonds and the joys that you know together in the local church. The ways that we can relate to one another in, in ways that you can't in any other setting. Why? We see ourselves, we see God, we see the world in the same way in Christ. It's, it's why we labor to protect our life together. We know what a gift this is from the Lord. The son prays and the son dies so that his people might have a unity that this world could never produce because this unity comes from another world, an otherworldly unity and also an otherworldly glory, an otherworldly glory, verses 24 through 26. The son's sight is not set squarely on the cross, but even beyond it, he sees beyond this age to his glory. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants his people to be with him to see glory that is his, glory that only comes to him through the cross. Now, what has the son known throughout his entire life in the world? He has attested that the father loves him, but what he's not known as he walked this earth was his own visible glory being seen. The cross as the way to glory was what the disciples were not prepared for. It was not the tragic end. It was the glorious beginning. And so in order to believe, we must all see what the world sees as folly, we must see as glory. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're bored to your tears at this point, come back to me and listen. What's true about Christians is what the world sees as foolish or as weak or embarrassing. Some people even think it's a lie. We see it as glorious. The cross of Jesus Christ. And if you would think about the cross, what it's telling you is that you see glory in this world wrongly. That you and I have pursued glory wrongly. And the cross comes to confront you in that. And it saves you from that. If you would see Jesus for who he is, you must see the glory of his life and his cross and believe. The cross not only exposes the pride and the folly of this world, it exposes you. 
exposes me. And the cross stands as the only way that this world can find salvation. Jesus bore in his body on the cross the sin everyone would ever put their trust in him. Through the cross comes resurrection glory. Do you see glory there? Or is it just boring and irrelevant to you? The depths to which the God who created the world has gone to accomplish salvation for a world that doesn't deserve it. This God means for his people to be with him, to see his glory. I think the amazing part of all of this, it's true. Anyone can get in on this by simply repenting of your own sin and believing in Jesus. What's this great purpose of salvation? It's to be with Jesus where he is, to see, to savor his glory. Some of you this summer saw things that were amazing to you. Uh, Maybe it was a landmark. Maybe you saw natural beauty. Sometimes when you see something like that, it's incredible. But you can't keep seeing it. You have to move on. Don't think of the glory of Jesus like that. This is a sustained seeing of his glory such that it transforms the way you see everything else. To understand this, prayer is to be certain glory is coming. Do you realize when we read the scripture earlier, Zebi led us, that even Moses, who communicated directly with God, who mediated with God on behalf of his people, when he asked to see the glory of God, God told him he could not see his face and live. His glory was such that he had to hide Moses in a rock, interestingly, as his goodness passed by him. Moses did so much for God's people. It doesn't compare with what Jesus has done and will do. He will bring us to his his place. We will see his glory and he will prepare us such that we're in bodies that can see his glory and live. Jesus means for you to gaze to where you are headed, to what is coming. And what that does is it propels you to be faithful today. Why does Jesus have this glory? Because the Father has loved him eternally from before the foundation of the world. And notice this link, verse 23, the Son prays in light of the fact that the Father loves us even as he loves the Son. Verse 24, Jesus connects the glory given him because the Father loved him for the foundation of the world. So clearly the Father loved us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what this must mean because he's loved us even as he loved the Son. And just as well, we will see the Son's glory. We will participate in it. We will share in it. Glory is coming. Unimaginable, otherworldly glory. A glory that has been shared between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, reveled in before the world began. Glory is what we as image bearers were made for. Glory, not some set of rules, not law. Glory is what Paul says we fell short of. And by the cross and the resurrection, glory is what we are destined for. Light, momentary afflictions, preparing us for an eternal weight 
of glory. That trial in your life right now as a Christian, preparing you for glory, that longing that you have so deep that has not yet been fulfilled, preparing you for glory, that sickness, that disease that you would have never asked for, but God wisely planned, preparing you for glory, that sorrow that is so deep, preparing you for glory. Glory is coming. And what is your confidence and your joy is it's all dependent on the power of God, not yours. He will do it. He doesn't just save us, but by saving us, he's transforming us. Look at verse 25. Righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. The eternal Son of glory goes to the cross, and the world does not even know it. Doesn't see him. Cannot discern who he is. Not then. Not now. Did he fail? No, because he knows his righteous Father. And he knows that because of who God is, that the world stands condemned. And it's not just Jesus who knows his Father. His disciples do. We know Jesus. We know that the Father approved his work, accepted his work. And the Son has made known to us his name. So this is different. Unlike in previous periods of of time, the Son has disclosed the fullness of the Father's name. Notice verse 26, and the Son will continue to make it known. And that comes by the indwelling work of the Spirit. Why will the Father continue to make himself known to his people? That the Father's love for the Son may be in us. Uh, That can mean among us, as we love each other. It can mean in us such that we're so transformed that we love the Son as the Father does. That characterizes our love for the Son and for each other. To love the Son is to love the Son's people. So we're not just objects of the Father's love. We are transformed by the Father's love. And in turn, we love his people. And so being prepared for glory. So the love that we labor to show one another is a rehearsal. It's a preparation for glory that's coming. I think that's what makes the church so otherworldly in this world. We know a little taste of heaven here, don't we? I mean, each week when we gather here, just think about what's happening in these brief hours together. God, by his own word, is setting the agenda. God, by his power, has gathered his people. God, by his spirit in us and among us, unifies us. God, the Son, mysteriously but truly, is with us. We gather here centered on and to behold God. And the angels look on as we worship. Is there anywhere else in the fallen world where this happens? In the rhythm of life in this world, God has so ordered our life that we would regularly taste his glory and see it together. He's scheduled this for us in our own lives so that we are prepared and believe glory is coming. And we know more and more, not just the love of the Father for us in Christ, but we are growing in our love for one another as well. Isn't this as close to what heaven truly is 
and is about that we can get to on this side of glory. It's how we're being prepared for it. I think this is what makes the church a compelling community. It is definitely not that we're cooler than everyone else, but it's our unity. It's what God has done in us and together among us. And we're transformed by the Father and the Son. So to display the glory and prepare to see it. This is why we want to and pray for and labor for churches to be planted. It's why we pray for this, to make God's glory visible to the world so that the world will believe that the Father sent the Son. Now, you've all come from different weeks. Some of you had a great week. Some of you had a miserable week. But every week when you come, you are tasting and being reminded glory is coming. Do you want to prepare for that? Commit to this week in, week out for however many years the Lord gives you here. I hope that it's such that when you leave here, you've done life together in such a deep way that it hurts, <laughs> that you've loved this body and this body is, has loved you. So many people come to the UAE to chase whatever their idea is of heaven. We want to be the people who have come here to display and to enjoy what the true glory of heaven is about. We've been given in Christ the commitment of our triune God to his people. He's created this unity. He's continuing to make the Father known to us as he brings people together from every place and will bring us to the place where the Son is. The Son has left nothing undone in our salvation. It looked like a tragic ending. It was a glorious beginning. There's a kingdom unlike any other that will outlast every kingdom of this world. View of the cross, Jesus prayed for the Father to glorify him in his presence with the glory that is his. And he prayed that we would see the glory. Because of that, brothers and sisters, we can be sure he will bring us to see his glory and bring us all the way home.